I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall be your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Well, good morning, Covenant Church. I, I couldn't help but think, as Jonathan was telling us about the church in Chickatown, if that Chickatown is near Wawa Town, and uh, you know, Chicka Chicka Wawa, maybe we can plant a church over there, right? So anyway, hey, before I get into the message, um, let me do some uh, house cleaning and just uh, make sure that we're all on the same page on a few things. Uh, we made the call to cancel our campus events. The session did, uh, I guess, on Friday. And uh, we did this to, to honor uh, our governor and his request that groups of, of a certain size not meet together in order to uh, you know, hopefully slow down the spread of the coronavirus. Now, what does that mean for us as a church? Is that through the end of March, uh, our normal campus events are canceled. This would be our worship service, our children's ministries, uh, youth ministry, things like that. Um, what it does not mean is that you have to uh, not get together as, for example, a covenant group. Um, if you want to do that and your group makes that decision to do so, uh, you're more than welcome. But just know that there won't be like child care and things like that available here on campus. Um, I, I actually read an interesting article this week that Jonathan sent to me. Uh, there is a quantitative biologist, which I didn't know was a thing, uh, at Georgia Tech, and he helped explain why, you know, there are acceptable levels of risk here. Uh, so, for example, he said if there were 20,000 cases of coronavirus in America, which there aren't that many yet, if you got together with your small group of, say, 10 people, uh, there is a point, or there is a 0.061% chance that you would then, in that small group, come into contact with someone who's been affected or infected by the coronavirus. 
You compare that to going to a hockey game with 10,000 people, which is just another reason not to go to hockey games, uh, it would be a 40% chance that you would come into contact with someone who is infected. And so you can see the rationale here of why the, our governing officials are taking these steps of caution to keep us away from large gatherings, but that doesn't mean that you can't get together on a smaller basis if you so desire. That's your choice um, in, in either a group or a ministry context. And so the best yet set, uh, which is a, sm a much smaller group, 20, 30 people, they are, are willing to take that on and have their karaoke, which I'm hoping at least one of them gets up there and does some Mick Jagger since they come from that generation, right? Uh, so that, has been that is where we are. As part of the canceling of events, we are canceling something that we had planned for next Sunday evening for our students in 7th to 12th grade. Uh, we're postponing it, I should say. Um, you know, as part of the things that occurred back in our church and our body life in February and the pain of all that, I mentioned to you at the time that in the future we would be providing a, uh, an opportunity for our students who've been affected by this, you know, season in our church uh, to provide counseling for them with qualified uh, Christian counselors. And so we have a team of four Christian counselors that had planned to come on campus next uh, Sunday evening and to uh, break our students up into smaller groups and to take them through a process to where, uh, you know, hopefully not only are their emotions being healed, but any spiritual wounds are also being healed uh, through this time. Uh, so parents, here's what we need you to do. First of all, understand we aren't canceling, we're postponing it. Uh, instead of the, the first meeting was supposed to be th uh, this next Sunday, the 22nd, and then there's a follow-up session planned for Sunday, April the 5th. Uh, what we're going to do now is the first session will be Sunday, April 5th, and then we'll have a follow-up session later in April, and we'll get you that date. What we need for you to do, parents, if you have parent, uh, children who are in seventh grade and up, so the counselors told us they felt like children who were around 12 to 13 years of age up through their senior year in high school would benefit from a group counseling sessions. Um, if you intend to have your children uh, participate in that, we would like to know how many to ensure that we have the right number of counselors and that we're able to do this well. So if you would email the church, maybe just the simplest way would be to, to email info at covenantpalmbay.org, put counseling in the subject line. So info at covenantpalmbay.org in the uh, uh, counselor in the subject line, and then let us know how many of your children and their names, and that way we can plan appropriately. Final piece of housekeeping before we get to the text. So it's a little different here this morning, right? I was asked, was this going to feel weird to only have like, you know, eight people with the praise team in the audience? And I told him, I said, well, that's a 300% increase over my first six weeks of pastorate ministry that I had eons and eons ago where I had only one person that I was preaching to every Sunday. And so this is a 300% increase to have eight in here. It is a little weird to see Mike Paljug over here at the foul line practicing his foul shots off camera. That's a little distracting, um, but no, having people in front of me, I can, not having people in front of me, I can cope with that. So Mike, please go sit down. And uh, he's, he's not really doing that. But um, we thought that would be kind of funny if the camera panned over there and you saw that. 
so one thing though that we are going to do a little bit different this morning especially for those of you who are watching us through facebook um, as the message proceeds if questions arise in your mind perhaps uh, and i don't answer it in the message if you would uh, type a comment address it to andrea who is monitoring everything and uh, she will text me your questions and at the close, uh, since we don't, you know, we're going to gain a little bit of time, hopefully, this morning, even though I did notice that Paxson snuck in an extra song in the first opening set, taking some of that time, a sneaker. But uh, anyway, uh, we will try to answer those questions from you if you put them into comments, and we'll have a little session of question and answer at the close before the benediction this morning. All right, we better get to the book of Romans. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, actually back in the fall, I gave you uh, kind of an outline for the entire book of Romans. Uh, you know, chapter one through a part, the middle part of chapter three is sin, and then you have salvation, sanctification in chapters six to eight. Chapters nine to 11 is sovereignty, and 12 to 16 is service. And we have just finished up the portion on sanctification, and now we're entering into the portion on sovereignty. But you know, as we were finishing sanctification and that portion of the book, you could already begin to see the theme of God's sovereignty starting to bubble up. And uh, chapter 8, as we were talking about suffering, and especially when we unpacked God's good purposes in chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, a couple of weeks ago, Paul really, at that point, put God's sovereignty and the truth of God's sovereignty on the table before us. In those, that last message a couple of weeks ago, you know, we focused on God's sovereign grace and humanity's objections. You know, humanity tends to object to God's sovereignty, especially when in light of the suffering that is in the world, for example, or the, the way it may clash with, you know, modern ideas and opinions as they relate to free will. And we addressed that a couple of weeks ago. But the big thing that we focused on was this invincible, unbreakable, golden chain of God's redemptive plan. Those five words, you know, foreknowledge, and then predestination, calling, justification, and glorification, which was part of that golden chain of God's redemptive plan. But there was a word that was missing from that golden chain. It, it was maybe implied, but it was not explicitly stated. And that was the word election. And so beginning in chapter 9, we bring this facet of, of God's sovereignty to the forefront. And Paul begins to address this. And so for the next four weeks in chapters 9 to 11, we're going to uh, have a series of messages called Sovereign Election, where we dig into these chapters and we see the truth behind God's sovereignty as it comes to election in the days ahead. As we start in chapter 9 this morning, uh, Paul defends God's faithfulness and he uses election as the, the basis for this defense. And what he, what he ends up telling us is that God faithfully accomplishes 
the salvation of those whom he has sovereignly chosen. What we actually, technically, what we have here in chapter 9 is what is known as a theodicy. A theodicy, or a theodicy, depending upon what part of the country you're from, is a, is a defense or a vindication of God's goodness and providence, especially in the face of suffering, evil, free will, these types of topics. And so Paul starts his defense of God's faithfulness to us, especially as it's expressed in our salvation, by confronting something that is very obvious. There were some in that congregation, probably the Jewish Christians at the Church of Rome, and in those through the centuries since then, who might doubt the faithfulness of God, and they point to Israel as proof to, for, to rationalize and justify their doubts. Chapter 9 is one of those chapters in the Bible that absolutely slaps us upside the face as believers. Um, the tone of chapter 9 is very different. I mean, you think about it for a moment. Last week, Brian finished up chapter 8, and, and, and Paul, in light of what he had done with the, this golden chain of redemption, he just breaks out in this you know, almost unrestrained uh, song of praise and doxology of praise towards God. And chapter 8 ends on this incredibly high note. And then chapter 9 comes along, and a hard left turn in tone, and the tone of Romans occurs. It's so jarring. It's been suggested that, you know, Paul made a mistake in doing this and putting this here. Uh, through the years, uh, pastors and speakers who have gone through the book of Romans have either glossed over chapter 9 or simply just skip it completely and ignore it. It's clear from this chapter and from the questions that Paul puts before us to be answered, that he has faced uh, this opposition before. Let's remember that Paul traveled uh, all throughout the Mediterranean world. He was a church planter. He was establishing churches in major cities. And it seems obvious, and, and you can kind of get this from the tone of chapter 9, that he had faced numerous questions about uh, most likely the truths that he gave us in chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. You can imagine how that conversation would happen because he would start by focusing on Jews in the city, and he would try to evangelize his own ethnic kinsmen. And then from there, he typically got kicked out of the synagogue. He had evangelized at least some from the synagogue, and they would start a, you know, a church, and Gentiles would join them. But you can imagine that those Jewish people who were getting converted or who were entertaining the, the, the uh, Christian faith might, you know, bow up against this idea of foreknowledge and predestination and calling and, and especially in God's faithfulness. I mean, how can you believe, Paul, in God's faithfulness to fulfill these things like predestination and calling and all this in light of the history of the Jewish people? I mean, after all, aren't we the chosen people of God, you know? And yet, what do we see? Most of our ethnic brothers and sisters, they reject Christ. It doesn't really look like God has been faithful to his chosen people at all. They've rejected their Messiah. How can you be assured that he will come through for us when it comes to predestination and calling and justification? And so Paul, in a very emotional way, um, it begins in chapter 9 to highlight the tension 
that this, you know, this creates maybe in the heart of a Jewish Christian or perhaps for a, in the heart of a Gentile Christian who loves the Jewish people. So in verse 1, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen in the flesh. I mean, think about what Paul is saying here. This is something that he will repeat in other passages, both within the book of Romans and in other epistles. He's saying essentially this, I love my kinsmen in the flesh. The Jewish people, as a Jew, I love them so much, and I see how they're rejecting Christ. This rips me to pieces. If it could happen, I would willingly go to hell for them if that meant they could go to heaven and be with Christ and our Heavenly Father. They are Israelites, he says, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all. You know, earlier in chapter 3, he raised the question, what good is it to be a, a Jew? What good is it to be part of those covenant people of God from the Old Testament. And, you know, in the beginning of chapter 3, he, he kind of left us hanging. You're expecting a long list, and he gave one, you know, one item, you know, law, and, and then he moves on to sin and all that. But here, it's like he takes it up again, and he, he gives us this long list, and, the, and you can almost sense that he could have said a whole lot more. And he just, you know, he shortens it. The Israelites, they had all these built-in advantages, and yet they reject the gospel, just like the, the pagan idolaters and worshipers do. So, you know, Paul, and this is why in the first part of the book of Romans, in the first three chapters especially, he's focusing on the Jews because they need the gospel too. They have all these advantages, but they still reject Christ. But it does beg the question, right? If this is what happens to God's chosen people, <clears throat> that they end up rejecting God, if the chosen people do this, why should we be confident that he's going to be faithful to us when it comes to our calling, our justification, our glorification? So in, in verse 6, Paul answers it. He gives a very emphatic and startling statement. He says, you know, it, it may appear at best that, you know, maybe God isn't as sovereign as we think. Maybe he's a little impotent in the face of, of free will, and he has to give up some of his sovereignty. I mean, that's, that's the best human explanation that we might come up with. At worst, we as humans might say, well, perhaps the reason why this is occurring is that God actually isn't faithful at all. He's mercurial, and we can't trust him any, in, in these types of things. But anyone who is tempted to think like this Paul's basically saying in verse 6, you need to hit the pause button. The, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us and our limited understanding of who God is and what he's up to. So this takes us to his answer in chapter 6, a certain point that we need to, a second point that we need to take and, and consider. To appreciate God's faithfulness, we must first understand what God means by the word Israel. He says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. You see, he's answering 
a question, an, an opposition that he has faced in the past. Has God not been faithful? Why hasn't God been faithful? He says, no, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the, the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul's saying, hey, hold on. Hit the pause button. God has absolutely been faithful to his chosen people, Israel. But the problem here is that our understanding of this word Israel is too narrow. It's too simplistic. We need to understand it from the perspective of God. Let, let's take a look at a graphic that maybe helps us understand what he's getting at. Here on the screen, <clears throat> you have a graphic of, of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and then his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. And then you have this mass of Jewish uh, descendants. And some of them are within this green circle called promise, and some of them are outside that green circle. And so the idea here that this graphic is explaining these verses that you can be a physical descendant of Abraham, you can be a Jew by birth, you can be a part of Israel, the nation, but you're not part of the Israel that truly matters to God and his redemptive plan. This is shocking, right? And you can see why, why you know, Jewish believers would ultimately kick, or Jewish people would ultimately kick him out of the synagogue. Once you get to that, you're attacking their identity. But we've seen this truth already in the book of Romans. In chapter 2, verse 28, For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. In chapter 4, he'll tell the, these folks, these Jewish folks, that, hey, you can't claim to be an Abraham's descendant if your allegiance is to the law and relating to God through the works righteousness of the law. You can't claim to be Abraham's descendant at all because Abraham related by faith. And so what we must understand from verses 6 and through eight is that Israel in this understanding the word Israel is not a particular race nation or ethnic group instead it is something very different in the second part of, of verse six he tells us that true Israel this Israel that's within this circle the children you know that true Israel is not the same thing as all of Israel right that in verse seven that Abraham's children is not the same thing as all of Abraham's descendants. That children of the promise does not equal children of Abraham's flesh. There's the large group, the children of the flesh, all Israel, the Abraham's descendants, but within that large group, there is a remnant. And we see this all the way back to the Old Testament. I've been reading in first and second kings and my my devotional reading and it came again to that story of elijah where he uh is you know fighting against ahab and jezebel and the prophets and at a low moment 
God brings him out onto the mountainside and he says, look down there in Israel. You think you're the only one serving me who worships me, but I'm here to tell you I have 7,000 plus people down there who are my children. But now grasp the severity of that. Out of this entire nation of hundreds of thousands of people, there's 7,000 who actually are Israel. They're believers. Dr. Stephen uh, Runge says it like this. He says that Paul's claim, oops, sorry, Paul's claim that Abraham's real descendants are reckoned by faith and not by lineage has significant implications. It defines the people of God by something other than national lines. Since not all of Israel has believed with the faith of Abraham, in Paul's view, the nation itself cannot be equated with the people of God. Later in chapter 11, Paul goes so far to say, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, that Israel actually consists of ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles, and they are all part of true Israel because they all have one thing in common, and that is that they are relating to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So is God not faithful to Israel? Yes, God is faithful to Israel if we actually understand what Israel means in God's redemptive plan. So the question is, how does one become a part of that group? You know, why does, why does one ethnic Jew become a part of true Israel and yet many more ethnic Jews do not? I mean, to make it more personal, why do you, as a Christian, why did you believe in Christ and trust in him, and yet maybe a loved family member does not? And the answer to that is in verses 9 to 16, and these verses are hugely important because they teach us that God chooses who belongs to Israel and is therefore responsible for our salvation. There's four truths in these verses, in verses 9 to 16, that specifically apply to this idea of God's sovereign election or God choosing who belongs to Israel and is therefore redeemed and saved from their sins. The first truth, and I want you to get these this morning, is that true Israel consists only of those whom God elects to be his children. True Israel only consists of those whom God elects to be his children. Now, we are in an election cycle here in our nation. And the word election for us means that, you know, we cast a vote and we hope that our guy or gal wins and the other candidate loses. And so some come to this idea of election that, you know, God casts the vote and then he hopes that what he wants actually occurs, but you know, it may not occur because Satan gets a vote and they cancel each other out and therefore we are the deciding vote as to which plan gets put into place. That is not what is being taught here at all. This word election, we need to understand it. It's the word electos. It, it, it's, it, it's in the Bible. It's often translated as choosing or choice. Sometimes it comes out as election, depending upon how the translators want to do it. It means that God selects, picks out of a crowd, someone for a special purpose and end that, that glorifies him. So the idea is that God chose, picked people out of the mass of humanity 
to become a part of true Israel. And Paul appeals to their own the Jewish history to see this happening. He says in verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Now remember, Abraham already had a son, Ishmael. But now he's going to have another son, Isaac. And then he gives another example in verses 10 and 11, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. And Rebekah's having a hard time conceiving like Sarah. And, and God says, nope, you're going to have two children, twins, Esau and Jacob. But in both of these examples, what happened? God chose to honor Abraham and the covenant that he made with Abraham and the promises of the covenant, and he chose to not do that through the oldest son, which was the typical way it worked in the Middle Eastern world and the ancient world at that time. It was the oldest son that everything flowed through, and God said, nope, it's going to go through the second son. I'm choosing to honor you through them. And so the irony here is that by doing that, even to this day, the descendants of Ishmael, the descendants of Esau, are enemies to ethnic Jews. They hate them, and there's been wars that we see in the Middle East as a result of that enmity. But to understand that the way you become a part of true Israel, it, it happens because God elects people to be a part of Israel. And this is what we see. Secondly, God's choice is not due to our inherent goodness or our works. In verse 11, he says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Underline that. They had done nothing either good or bad. Verse 12, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A few weeks ago, I touched on this, but it, it bears kind of camping on it for a little bit this morning that the the way christianity will often try to explain away the absoluteness of god's sovereignty and election is by use of that little word foresight you might want to write that down foresight in other words god looked down through the corridors of history and he saw that you know paxson and mike paljug and debbie would would, when they heard the gospel, they would ultimately believe the gospel. They would give their lives to Christ and repent of their sins. So God, seeing what they were going to do, chose them to be a part of true Israel, his, his family. There, there's a couple of problems with this understanding of foresight, church, and I want you to really get this because this is really the, you know, we have an alternative. You have two alternatives here. You either accept what God says about himself and election as, as I'm explaining it to you now, or you, you go with this idea of foresight, which is a very common interpretation in evangelical Christianity. The, the problem with that is this. It has God. Well, let me, let me ask you like this. Let me ask it to you like this. If, if there's only one thing that you can do in your entire life that is righteous and good and pleasing to God, what would that one thing be? Right? Would it be giving charitable money, money away to charities? Would it be serving in your church? Would it be singing on the stage? Is that the one thing that if, if all of us could only do one thing, righteous and good, and the decision that we could make, was that, no, of course not. The one thing would be to trust in Christ, to commit our lives to Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that, that's, I think we can all agree. 
That's righteous. It's good to trust in Jesus. The problem with saying God sees you choosing in Jesus and therefore chooses you is that that then creates a situation where we have salvation by works. Salvation based upon something righteous that we did. God is choosing because we do something righteous. This, by definition, is salvation by works. It's works righteousness. That's the problem with this view. And secondly, it's a problem because it's just impossible. The scriptures tell us it's impossible. In Romans 3, we looked at this, that there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. In our natural state, we cannot make a righteous decision. We cannot make a spiritually good decision. It's impossible for us to do this. So therefore, it's impossible for God to look down to quarters of time and see us doing it. It's not within us. The only way we choose Christ is through God choosing us and at the appointed time giving us a new heart that yearns to turn from sin and to embrace Jesus Christ and that heart yearns this and desires this and the heart drives the will and the will says I believe but the entire gift of faith and repentance and that heart comes from God because of his choice and his calling third truth God's choice is according to the good pleasure of his will and election. It's not according to our goodness. Nothing inherently good in us. The choice is according to the good pleasure of his will and election. The second part of verse 11 says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Why does he choose these boys? Not because of anything good or bad, but because of his purposes and election that they might continue. Not because of their works, but because of him who calls. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice in God on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In Ephesians 1, Paul says it in a different way to the Ephesians. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. A final truth in this, these verses that I want you to, to get a hold of, right, is that what God sovereignly decrees... God accomplishes. What he decrees, he accomplishes. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God chooses, and God is responsible for bringing about our salvation. Now you can immediately hear objections. What about us? Don't we do anything in all of this? Yes, we absolutely do. We bring all of our sin and our wickedness and our evil desires and actions, our rebellion. That's what we bring to the party. We rebel and we run from God. Like Adam and Eve, we hide from God. But the good news of the gospel is that God runs faster than us. And he always finds the people whom he has chosen. This is sovereign election. 
These truths are grand. They're hard. They smack us against the face. Some would say they're not even practical. Why bother? Why don't we just skip chapters 9, 10, and 11? Because this really isn't practical. It doesn't help us have a better marriage, have a better life, have a better job, etc., etc. And they could not be more wrong. Couldn't be more wrong. Let's close by asking the important question. The little two-word question, right? Hope you get this by now. What's that question? So what? Yeah, so what? Listen, if you are an unbeliever this evening or this morning, this truth should affect you, right? You know, we are glad that you're a part of our congregation. We're glad that you come and you worship with us. Some of you, you come into our small groups, you're investigating, you're looking for answers in life. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you see in your life maybe a growing desire within you to know more? Do, do you see growing within you a desire to better understand the gospel and the word of God and to get, maybe, maybe you even already are beginning to desire to commit your life to Christ, but there's something, you know, that's stopping you. There's an obstacle in your life. I want you to understand, you should appreciate this because your movement from doubter to believer shows how much God absolutely loves you and he has a plan for your life that is going to end up glorifying him. And so I want to encourage you, if, that, if that's where you are, as perhaps you haven't made that final step in your faith that to you know, reach out. Uh, I love meeting with people who are on this spiritual journey and love having lunch with you guys and, and answering perhaps those questions that are, that are forming obstacles for you so that you can enter into your Christian faith in a mature manner. Believers, this truth has incredible, incredible practical value for us, right? The first thing is, is it smashes our pride and it promotes humility and gratitude. Why are we a part of true Israel? Why are we children of the promise and not children of the flesh? Why are we Abraham's children and not just Abraham's descendants? It's not because we're better than anyone else. But for the grace of God, we go right there along with our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and our friends. And so this truth smashes all attempts at self-pride and spiritual arrogance and, and looking down our noses at those who have not committed their life to Christ Instead, what it promotes is humility. It promotes gratitude. It, it also emboldens us. It emboldens us to embrace our church's mission to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. This truth tells us we don't have to have all the answers to, to be ambassadors for Christ. We don't have to have our act and our presentation of the gospel nailed down and memorized and we can answer the most esoteric questions before we can be used by God to bring people to faith. No. All we have to do is be willing servants who surrender ourselves to God and, and praying for these people who we love that we interact with, just asking him, Lord, let me be a part of it. Would you use me to bring gospel restoration to them? There's no reason for fear here. God brings people into our lives for this very purpose. He sovereignly chooses who will come to him in faith, and then he also appoints us to be his ambassadors to bring that message of faith 
to those who he has chosen. Parents, you're a good example of this. You're given children. And part of the most basic understanding of being a Christian parent in the covenant of God is to communicate the gospel in both your life and in your words and to bring your children, ideally, to the point where they understand it and they then commit their life to Christ. If you have problems in this, understand that that's why we're here to help equip you. In, in May, you might want to mark the date, May the 2nd, the first Saturday in May, we're going to do a legendary parent seminar, parents, in order to help equip you to lead your own children to Christ. It starts in your own home. And finally, this truth, the grandeur of this truth, it provokes awe and wonder and worship as we consider the mighty awesomeness of God in light of who we are what he has done for us when we didn't deserve any of it. The only thing we can do in response is worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your faithfulness to us through election. Lord, we thank you that for some mysterious reason that you alone know, according to the good pleasure of your will, you chose us before the foundations of the world. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to make our election sure, to live out our faith in fear and trembling, knowing that we are your instruments of righteousness. Help us to be the people that you want us to be. And Lord Jesus, for the one, perhaps, who's listening even this morning, who is on that spiritual journey and they've yet to commit their life to Christ, give them the courage, Lord, to reach out to me or to someone else in our church and, and settle the questions that they may have towards Jesus. I ask that for their good, Lord Jesus, and for your ultimate glory in their life. In your name I pray. Amen.